Good to see everyone on this uh, really delightful weekend that we have been given. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was uh, at a conference and I had an opportunity to hear a young um, man make a presentation. His name is Finney Kirkovia. And Finney uh, had done his undergraduate work at uh, Caltech and then had done a medical degree at Harvard had done a Ph.D. in biochemistry at Harvard, and uh, during the time he was picking up those two degrees, he had uh, uh, pursued an interest in systems theory and got a computer science degree at MIT. Uh, I I bumped into Finney in the hallway, and uh, after his presentation, I found him to be just a remarkably delightful uh, engaging guy with a deep, vibrant faith, and he was most passionate about a church that he had started in Boston that had uh, just grown to a second site and that he was pastoring. And that in addition to his professional publications, um, he had, um, was really spending most of his time pastoring this church, and he had just written uh, two uh, books on a particular uh, period in church history that he was uh, quite interested in. And that uh, his official day job was an investment company that he had started. And he had two two, uh, mutual funds that Morningstar rated in the top 5% in the health uh, sphere. By the way, uh, Finney, maybe he's 40. I don't think so. I suspect he's 35. He and his wife have five young children. I don't believe that it was his intention as we were standing there together to make me feel like such a complete loser, but that was, <laughs> that was the net effect, and I found myself thinking, you know, Finney, I wish I had met you a year ago before I worked on my sermon on envy, because you would have been a lot of just ammunition for that particular message. I bring, uh, I bring Finney up because... If I had had Christ's assignment to launch a revolution, Jesus does many things, but part of this assignment that he has when he is sent from heaven is to spread the kingdom of God. If I had had that assignment, I would have picked people like Finney, not like Peter or James or John. Right? I would have looked for people like him. I would have gone to... Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and others and said, you know what, let's, we'll pool our money, all three of us, and then let's, <laughs> let's capitalize this project. Right? I, would, I would have gone to, to uh, people like Marissa Meyer, the young CEO at Yahoo, who, ha- who after helping found Google, uh, takes over Yahoo, and in the course of one three-month period, Uh, repositions the company, makes a major acquisition, uh, stabilizes their stock price, and gives birth to a child all in the same uh, quarter, right? Those are the people I would have gone after. Those are not the people that Jesus ends up working with. Today, um, we are going to look at the fact that, that Jesus does another truly remarkable and amazing thing. He changes the world with a bunch of also rans, which with a bunch of a bunch of guys that had already been overlooked and set aside. Disciples 
were usually uh, sort of put into the track of becoming rabbis when they were 12 or 13 years of age. That's when you got into this internship program to move forward in, in the power structure of Israel. The disciples that Jesus chooses are well past that. They, they are not, uh, they're not among the people who show much promise. And uh, yeah, Jesus is going to use these people to change the world. They were remarkably unremarkable. They had been left behind. And yet uh, Jesus is going to staff the revolution with these folks. They are his A-team. They're the ones that he will leave behind to change the world. Um, We are beginning a new series, as has been mentioned. We've finished this series Amazed, and we're now uh, on a a new sort of subset of of the Gospel of Luke, and this is called uh, Right Side Up. And in the course of Right Side Up, we're going to look at these, the astounding first principles that Jesus introduces to the disciples. Today, we're looking at their selection. And uh, this comes in Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 12. It's probably been a year, maybe a little bit longer, that Jesus has been traveling around all of, you know, the area of Israel, Palestine, teaching. Uh, he's, he's developed quite a reputation. He's, he's been amazing in terms of the things that he claims, that he's, right, he's the Messiah. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He can forgive sins. He's going to change the world. He's amazing in what he's claimed, and he's amazing in what he's done. He has demonstrated power over sickness, power over evil, power over nature. Um, and now the, the crowds are big. You know, he's got a reputation. The crowds are, are quite significant. Out of those crowds, he's going to select 12. And that's what we're reading about today in Luke chapter 6, beginning with verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Four observations I want to make from this passage today. Number one, uh, Jesus prayed first. Um, Jesus prayed. First things first, uh, he has got a big decision to make, and Luke is quite clear that he spent the night in prayer before he made it. Luke has, has been developing this idea that Jesus gets up early in the morning and slips away from the crowds in order to have time of reflection and prayer every day. This is uh, something beyond that. Jesus spends the entire night praying before he makes this decision. And we will see this pattern as well when Christ has particularly big events particularly momentous decisions to make, he will spend even more time in prayer. And uh, that's, that, is, that is the drill. That is his pattern. We're not told what he prayed, but it's not too difficult to imagine that he is saying, okay, God, um, I don't want to mess this up. Who, who should I select? And you can just almost hear him talking through each one. I like Peter. He's a little bit 
too spunky. He's a little too impetuous. But he's got a lot of, he's got a lot of drive. I think I can work with that. Judas, you know, uh, I need a bookkeeper. And, uh, and I suspect that maybe he serves us in troubling ways as well. I think I'm supposed to have him around. Yeah, you can just hear him praying through this list before he makes his decision. Now, as an aside, uh, we're told that Jesus spent all night in prayer. And I know that some of you find it difficult to spend 10 minutes a day in prayer. I, for years, have said... You ought to start your day with 10 minutes of Bible reading and 10 minutes of prayer, 10 plus 10. It's not a, not a rule. Don't be legalistic about it. Don't feel that burden, right? You're not earning God's favor, but I think that is a revolutionary practice over time. 10 minutes a day of reading the Bible, 10 minutes a day of prayer. Some of you go, how in the world do you spend 10 minutes in prayer? Okay, well... Um, just posted a, an article, a, a blog entry, and you can read that. It's through our website about how to spend extended periods of time in prayer, starting with 10 minutes. And, you know, I say, look, we, you can use the Lord's Prayer as a template for this. There are six petitions that make up the Lord's Prayer. That's essentially what it is. We're asking for six things. God, glorify yourself. You know, that's hallowed be thy name. We want your kingdom. We want your will to be done. Uh, Give us what we need to get through the day. Uh, Forgive me of my sins while I wrestle and forgive other people, right? I mean, there's there's a cadence to that, and you could spend just a minute or two on each of those petitions. Or on Monday, you could spend all your time on the first one. Uh, Acts is another uh, model to use. A stands for adoration. C stands for confession. T stands for thanksgiving. So adoration, we praise God for who he is. We thank God for what he's done. So adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. This is just requests. So you can use that model. You can just pray through Scripture. The Psalms are prayers. You can just pray the Psalms. You can write out your prayers. This has been Bill Hybels' daily habit for 30-some years. He writes a letter to God with his concerns every morning. That's, That's the cadence. That's the drill. So there's lots of different ways to do this. Um, The point right now is that... um, we're noting Jesus spent time in prayer before he acted. He did act. Okay? He didn't just pray, but he prayed first. He, he humbly uh, made his request known to God, and then he acts with great boldness and courage, prays first. Number two, we see that he called some to be apostles. Verse 13 reads... When morning came, he called his disciples to him. So the disciples are followers. The word means students or learners. So there's lots of people who are following Jesus around, learning from him, watching the miracles. Maybe they're hoping to be healed. Uh, So there's disciples around. He calls the disciples, and he chose 12 of them whom he designated to be apostles. Um, The word apostle means one who is sent on a mission. Uh, in the first century, there would be, the word apostle was often used to describe emissaries or ambassadors, somebody who is, 
who is empowered to be a spokesman for someone else, uh, to make decisions in some cases for a king. These would be terms synonymous with being uh, an apostle. In the Bible, uh, what we see is that the word apostle refers to two sort of two big categories. The first is that Jesus is an apostle. Jesus is the, the chief apostle. Uh, Hebrews 3.1 says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, whom share in the heaven, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, who we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Jesus was sent from God on a mission. He's an apostle. He's the first apostle, the primary apostle. The, the main way that the word apostle is used in the New Testament is to refer to these 12. And they are unique, and they are unique in this way. They are hand-picked by Jesus. They will see him after he rises from the dead, and they will be entrusted with the, the, the mission going forward. There's a sense in which the 12 apostles replace the 12 tribes of Israel in a symbolic way as the foundation for the work that God is doing in the world. Okay. Now, today the word apostle is used in a couple different ways. If you're paying close attention, people will, will increasingly, it's common for people to talk about an apostolic ministry. And this is, refers to people that are going someplace where the church has not ever been. They're taking the gospel into an area where it is not gone. Or they're planting a church is, or they're doing missions. All of that is considered apostolic ministry. I've not heard anybody that's doing that, that uses the term apostolic, refer to themselves as being an apostle. But there are also people now who are starting to say that they are apostles. And so as opposed to saying, I'm a, you know, I'm a teacher, or I'm a pastor, or I'm a, an evangelist, or I'm a bishop. A bishop is somebody who's sort of over a number of churches. As opposed to using any of those terms, there are people, some, who now say, I'm an apostle. Um, And some of those, not all, but some of those even suggest that that category of being an apostle carries the same kind of freight or gravitas as as Peter, James, and John, and Bartholomew. And and my counsel would be, if you find somebody that identifies himself as an apostle, just slowly back out of the room because this is not going to end well. Uh, the, The apostles that we are looking at here, Paul will be an addition. Uh, there will be a, a little addition when, when Judas falls away. Uh, but Paul's the last of the apostles, is how he describes himself. He also is called by Jesus. He sees the risen Savior, and he's also entrusted in a unique way uh, to carry forth the, the, the work of the church. So, the term apostle has a few meanings. Basically, it refers to the 12. Jesus selects 12 into which he's going to invest more time and energy than he's going to invest in anybody else. Third point, the call that he gives to them is to uh, suffer and die. This is, a, this is just a very important point. It's not unfair to say the call that Jesus extends to these 12 is to move out of the come and see phase into a go and die phase. And that's what many people do not 
understand. And that's why we have, we have called this series Right Side Up. For the most part, uh, people who get in on the ground floor, right, um, have all the upside later on. Right? I mean, you want to be one of, the, one of the first 12 or 15 or 100 people working at Google, right? Because that means you've got ten, hundreds of millions of dollars in stock options, billions of dollars. Being one of the first followers of Jesus means that you are going to die for this cause. Ten of the 12 that he calls will die as martyrs for the cause. The, the two exceptions, one is Judas, who ends his own life, and the other is John, who will, who will suffer, who perhaps should have died, and then is going to be uh, banished to uh, first century uh, Alcatraz, an island called Patmos. He will die of old age. Uh, he's the only you know, other one other than Judas that doesn't die as a martyr. The, the, the call into, into Christian service, the call into into being a disciple of Christ is not a call into privilege. It's not a call into power. It's a call into sacrifice. And the only way it makes any sense, the only reason you would ever want to be a disciple of Christ is if you believe that we will live after we die. Because otherwise, this just doesn't, it doesn't play out. And we'll see that starting next week when we, when we look at what Christ says on what is, in fact, the first day of class. So here he is calling the disciples, and then we're going to see what he says to them. In essence, their day of orientation. And, and what, what happens, it's a, it's a radically different orientation than you would get almost anywhere else because for the most part, when you go to the first day of class, they hand out a syllabus, and maybe if they go beyond that, there's a little review as to what you learned earlier. Uh, and if it's beyond that, it's, it's, the, it's the simple ideas as opposed to the profound ones. You learn your ABCs before... You, you're handed the brothers Karamazov. You learn 2 plus 2 equals 4 before you're supposed to do digression analysis, right? I mean, that's the way it works. That's not what Jesus does, right? Because he can't build on the foundation that's in place. It's upside down. And so the first things he's going to say are things like, blessed are the poor, right? The first shall be last. Love your enemy. I mean, it's just all these things that you go, yeah, those are good things, but that's not how I live. Right? Blessed are the poor, no, 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 I want to be rich. Bl- uh, love my enemy. Hmm, I don't really like my enemy. I don't want to love them. I don't want to sacrificially rearrange my life to serve them. It's radical, upside-down stuff that Jesus is going to share. And and part of it is is just as it relates to moving up in the Christian world means climbing down the ladder. And that's Christ's teaching, and that's going to be Christ's example. Jesus, who although existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself became one of us, steps down the rungs of the ladder, becomes a slave, not just a slave, but a slave that goes to his death, and not just death, but death 
on the cross. It is radical, countercultural, upside-down stuff that Jesus is going to share. And one of the first things to realize is that he calls all of these people, in essence, to die for the cause. We don't, uh, we don't see their deaths in, the, in the, the Bible. The Bible doesn't give us those reports. But if we go outside of Scripture and we look at uh, some of the early writings of the, the church, we know that um, this is how it unfolds. James is the first to die. He's Christ's brother. He uh, was a bishop in Jerusalem when he's arrested, condemned, and beheaded. Simon will take over for, uh, for uh, James as bishop of Jerusalem, and he is going to be crucified. Thomas goes to India. Uh, I've been in a cave that supposedly Thomas hid out in at one point when everything is, is going south, uh, but he won't make it out alive. Uh, he's killed there, as is Bartholomew. Bartholomew went to India, was beaten, crucified, and beheaded. Uh, Andrew was beheaded. Uh, Matthew, the former tax collector, is somewhere in northern Africa when he is uh, killed with a spear. Philip is stoned. Peter uh, is, is killed during the first wave of persecution under Nero. Tradition suggests that he was uh, crucified upside down because he didn't want to die. He didn't feel worthy to die in a manner uh, similar to Christ. So, um, again, Judas is, ends his life. Uh, and, and John is the one who, who lives to be, a, to be an older man, uh, but he is boiled at one point, and then he is uh, banished to this island um, called Patmos, which was sort of a prison island. And he was there. We think he got out of there and actually returns to leadership in the church. But he's the only one who doesn't die uh, as a martyr for the faith. The call to follow Jesus is very much a call to suffer and die. Number four, Jesus went deep, uh, not wide. As I mentioned, it's probably a year plus into Christ's three years of public ministry. He's been traveling around. The crowds at various times have been big. And we'll see this in the future. The crowds will get big. As he is teaching, as he's healing, as he's multiplying food, there will be a lot of people who will want to get close to Jesus. What we see is that the more he walks towards the cross, as, as his ministry uh, continues towards his, the crucifixion, he um, will spend less and less time with the crowds and more and more time with these 12. And in fact, not just the 12, he particularly focuses on three within those 12. Peter, James, and John. He goes deep, not wide. And when the crowd gets too big, right, when the crowds just get unruly, what Jesus does is he just talks about the cost of following him. And people scatter, right? They, they, weren't, they were there for a miracle. They were there for free food. They were there for something else. But, whoa, you're going to talk about dying? You're going to talk about suffering? You're going to talk about serving? You're going to talk about going to the end of the line? Yeah, I wasn't here for that. So the crowds will get smaller. Jesus goes and invests his life in the 12. He goes deep, not wide. He doesn't want Twitter followers, right? He wants disciples. And, um, and he could have gone the other way. He's God. I mean, he can do miracles. He could generate a crowd. But he's going to go deep, not wide. And if by chance that pattern of life 
transformation and ultimately world revolution. If that pattern is missed, the Apostle Paul makes sure that we get that that is the pattern we are to follow when in the very last letter he writes before he dies, he's writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, Timothy, the things that you have heard from me in the presence of faithful, excuse me, Timothy, the things that you have heard from me in the presence of others, entrust to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. The things that you have heard from me in the presence of many, right, as I've been teaching, preaching, right, causing riots, you've you've been around, Timothy, you've watched me work. The things that you learn from me, teach to others who will in turn be able to teach and impart to others still. It is a big downline that Jesus is after to set up. And, And guess what? It actually works. It reached you, right? It's the, it's the way the system works. Uh, somebody tells somebody, invests in their life, teaches them to invest in someone else's life, and it just keeps moving down the line, and eventually it reached us. And, and with this group of misfits, Jesus sets in motion uh, a revolution that is now uh, given us the oldest largest, most global institution in the world. It just, again, it, it didn't look like it was going to work for a while, by the way. I mean, the disciples for a couple years act like the Keystone Cops when they're always late and when they're supposed to go left, they go right. And when the, the message is on humility, they fight over who's greatest. And, and uh, you know, the two of them will deny him. It doesn't look like he's, like he's got a winning hand. For a while. But once they get it, right, they, they, will, they will stand up to the powers of the Roman Empire and over the next couple generations bring it down. And then it will spread around the world. Right? I mean, this is, this is what Christ puts in motion. And it is amazing. It's part of the reason we would also say it's not as spectacular as walking on water or raising the dead. Just think about it. When I was a consultant, I used to keep track of of how many companies were in the Fortune 500 20 years ago that are not still in it today. And it was always usually about half. Right? I mean, it's hard for a company that's good in the 80s to still be good in the 90s. And if you're good in the 90s, you're probably not at the top of your game in the, you know, the 2000s. It just, it, companies would rise and fall. Imagine what Christ has done here by starting something that goes on forever. I mean, he starts that. And it is, it is, the church is still, to this day, it is growing faster than any other, uh, any other worldview, any other philosophy. Not in this country. Okay? Not in the West. It is, it is in, uh, plateaued at best in the West. But uh, Africa, Asia, Latin America, former Soviet bloc country, growing faster than Islam. And Islam is growing mostly by, um, by population. Christianity is growing mostly by conversion. And, and it, by the way, it could grow here today in ways that would be explosive if we just embrace the plan. Let me just say, this weekend, between the six, seven services at Christ Church, would be a couple thousand people. 
Let's say a thousand of them are kids or visitors, so we'll just say there's a thousand. If the thousand people who are here who say, I'm in, I believe this, I'm a follower of Christ, if the thousand people who said, I'm in, said, this year, I am making a commitment that I am going to pray and live and think and work in such a way that there will be someone here with me next year. Right? I am going to love people. I'm going to invest in people. I'm going I'm to be praying for people. I'm going to look for opportunities to invite them to social things so that I can later make an invitation to come to Alpha or Mops or my, our small group or whatever I'm going to invite them to. I'm going to give them something to read. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to look for opportunities to talk and sprinkle my conversation with things about the Lord. And eventually, my goal is that as I do this over the course of the year, that there's somebody here with me next year because of my life. And I'm going to invest in that person to the extent that they will be able to bring somebody the next year. Okay? So if that, if that happens, if only that happens, and it, only we are doing it, No one else, no other congregation on the planet is doing it. If we just set that in motion, everybody will be following Christ in 23 years, (laughs) right? I mean, that's the power of exponential growth. We're already at 1,000. I mean, you spend forever to get to 1,000. It's 2, and then it's 4, and then it's 8, and then it's, you know. It takes forever to get the number to be 1,000. There's 1,000 people. There's 2,000 people here. So I'm just saying, let's back up and just start with 1,000. If we made that commitment, uh, I, I did the math here. In 20, um, by the end of 2015, there's 4,000, 8,000 by 2016. Um, by 2020, 128,000 people. By the end of 2030, there's 131 million people. Horrible parking, by the way, at that point. <laughs> That's 2030, just us, and by 2036, over 8 billion people. And this, is, this, is the, this is the plan, right, that we would make that commitment. And here's what you need to know. That is what we're called to, and that is what we will be rewarded for in heaven. We can't take the clothes and cars and money and we can't take that with us, right? As, as John Ortberg, I think, wonderfully says, there's a whole lot about life that's just like a Monopoly game, and at the end of the game, every, all the pieces go back into the box, right? And you don't get to take it with you. It, it, although you might have all the hotels on Boardwalk and Park Place. When the game's over, it all goes back in the box. Other things matter. And that's very much about what's going to matter for us. Investing our life in the things that matter to God Right? Proclaiming the good news and seeing people come to faith and engaging in good works, those are the things that we're called to. And those are the things that will be rewarded. And we have an opportunity to do that. Now, there's some other things to see here. You know, it's interesting that there's quite a bit of diversity among the, the, uh, the apostles, including you know, you've got a zealot who's sort of a punk rocker, death to the machine, you know, spiked hair, heavily tattooed guy. And you've got uh, a tax collector who's a, you know, CPA, IRS agent, button down, white start shirt kind of guy. You got him on the same team. That's interesting. There's some things, observations that we could make about the 12. I want to leave you with this. 
We do not have to be as smart as Finney Kukavira to be on Christ's team. But we have to be available, and we have to be teachable, and we have to be in the game. We do not have to be as gifted. Christ used remarkably unremarkable people. But they understood eventually what they were supposed to be about. And they began investing their lives in others. And it set on foot a revolution that continues to this day. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we want to be part of that revolution. We want to be part of your work that will matter forever. Help us to see past the distractions, the clutter. Help us to see past the monopoly game that is ultimately not going to matter and to see the things that matter to you and will matter for eternity. May we be faithful disciples. May you use Christ Church to that end in revolutionary ways. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.